Thank you, thank you, Russell. I feel the exact same way. I should probably just leave now. Everybody have a great day. How do you, how do you follow that, right? Um, it is an absolute joy and honor to be here with family. Um, uh, I was mentioning earlier today, it was like, oh, you're here at our church. And I said, no, 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 we're here at our church. Uh, because we do feel like this, this is our church. This is our community. Uh, we're a huge part of this, and we feel like you all are a huge part of us. So um, it's exciting to, to share with you. Uh, Russ mentioned that I have, I have a new, am I going in and out on this? Am I okay? That I have a new role with Christian Associates, CA International, and that is the North America Advancement Director. I'm going to tell you more about that uh, and some of the things that we have come to over the last several months as we've been thinking about and strategizing around what mission looks like in North America and what we have learned over the last 50 years in CA um, doing missional church planting throughout Europe. I've entitled our message this morning, uh, The Present Future. The present future. And as I put this together, what was really inspiring and uh, made me smile a lot was a lot of what I'm going to be presenting here today are thoughts and feelings and attitudes and ways of interpreting scripture um, that would be maybe a fairly radical departure for some in the church, but it's not for you. In fact, uh, a lot of what I'll be speaking to today are things I learned here. Um, things that uh, I learned from Russ having worked here and from being a part of this community, which has been living out what it means to be missional for a very long time. Um, so I'm excited to share some of the things with you that you already know and already taught me. So there you go. You can tell me afterwards if, uh, if I've got things right. We are very excited about where we are as a faith community over in Coeur d'Alene with Cairo Community. Uh, we planted that four years ago. And we are at a place now that I would say is the healthiest we have ever been. We are loving each other well. We are engaging in discipleship. We are living authentic life. Uh, and we are growing by leaps and bounds just in the last six months. When I say growing, I mean that we as individuals, as disciples of Christ, are growing in really significant ways. And it's, uh, it's quite, quite beautiful. It is an exciting time as I think of uh, the new venture that I'm engaged in as well. It's an exciting time to be a missiologist and a futurist. I am studying missional theology as part of my doctorate through Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, and we have been engaged in missional activities and church planting uh, for some time now. Uh, Christy and I have both been on staffs of churches that started very small and got very, very large, and we've been on church staffs that have been rather small, and now we're leading a community of faith um, that we would probably call micro, and they're all, all wonderful. Um, but what we've learned through all of that, uh, especially as we consider where we are today as a church in North America, the future has never been so close at hand as it is right now. It has never been as close at, ha at, at hand as it is right now. Time does indeed go faster. Now, if you're over 50, you know that as a reality. That time goes faster. But you know what? It goes faster for all of us because we are closer every day to big advancements and significant cultural changes. We're close to them every single day. And so as we think through the church and the present future, we must be aware of these things and how they are leading us into new ways of being the church. So a number of months ago, Christy and I went to Lisbon, Portugal to be a part of uh, the summit there that CA has every year. And part of what I'm going to do this morning is summarize some of the thinking and the processing that took place there. The questions that we were asking each other is, um, what is next? What is next for the church? What is next for the mission 
of CA? What are the anchors in the church that have remained and are important for us to hold on to? What are some cultural trends right now that are affecting uh, how we live and think and be, uh, both in a secular sense and in a religious sense, in a Christian sense? Who are we to be in the midst of those cultural changes? Well, almost by accident, CA has been uh, dwelling in this very place. I'll give you a little bit of history about Christian Associates International. It started in the 1960s in Southern California by a gentleman named Linus Morris. Uh, in the late 1960s, he was at UCLA. He later went on to get uh, an MDiv, uh, I think at Fuller Seminary, and then got a PhD as well. Um, CA will celebrate its 50th anniversary next year. CA has been doing this missional thing long before the word became another overused and underrealized ideal. Speak about that more in a minute. They've been doing it long before the word got co-opted and used incorrectly to identify certain kinds of Christians. Now listen, this is important for us to take away. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you are by definition missional. It's not optional. You can't just say, oh, I'm one of those missional Christians and I'm some other kind of Christian. If you use the word Christian, you are on a mission. So let's not be confused by that. You are missional if you call yourself a Christ follower. It's not a buzzword. It's a trait. It's not a buzzword. It's a trait. So as we go into some of this, um, I want to give us uh, a couple of different ways of viewing, uh, first of all, how we may interpret Scripture. So uh, in summary, CA has been doing this for a long time. They got their start doing this in Europe. As Linus was seeing what was happening in the American church landscape in the 1960s, some really radical things happened in the 1960s that are still guiding how the church in America is operating today. The um, movement and some others, they started using modern music and they started attracting large crowds to a, a different way of kind of celebrating faith. The liturgy got replaced by different ways of worship in large spaces. And the church responded to that. And we saw the rise of megachurch movements and so forth. Um, so what Linus did as he was sitting in, at UCLA in the 1960s is he said, I wonder what it would look like if we were to take a way of being the church community into an that no longer recognize the church. So he thought, we're going to Europe. That's what they did. Europe at the time was a post-Christian society. The churches in Europe in the 1960s still today uh, exist primarily as museum pieces. Uh, the, the parts of community in Europe where it used to be the norm to talk about uh, one's engagement with God and religion has long since passed, probably over 150 years ago now. So they went into Europe and said, what would it be like to embed in this culture and just start living as sent Christian people? And it blossomed. It blossomed. Uh, this is 50 years ago now. They started in the Netherlands, and it just went crazy all throughout Europe. Well, about 10 years ago, they're looking at this and saying, well, what would this look like if we were to do this in North America? Because what they started to realize was North America is starting to look a lot like Europe did 50 years ago. And so they started this endeavor. America, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. So as we dive into this, I want to cover a big picture item, and that is how we interpret Scripture, because that is going to uh, help us as we go through some of the rest of the learning this morning. There are two primary ways um, that we should interpret Scripture, I believe. The first one is that we should interpret Scripture literally. I'm going to let that one sink in for a minute, because usually people either get up and leave or they start cheering uh, when I say that. Let me tell you what I mean by literally. The first thing is that I believe the Bible means what it says. 
unapologetically, I say that. The Bible means what it says. With a caveat, we have to take strong regard to the culture and context in which the Scriptures were written. We have to understand that many idioms and figures of speech are used. Uh, The original languages can uh, cause some tensions for us as we look to what that means in English versus what those languages really mean in their original context. And you know, most of the church is spending most of its time on trying to figure out what it means to interpret the Scriptures literally. A lot of energy gets put into uh, this particular area, and it's really the source of most of the arguments. When you see Christians bickering back and forth, it's usually about how we interpret and understand Scripture. This is not a bad thing until it becomes the main thing. Because there are other ways that we must understand and view and interpret Scripture. The second big category, it's three ways in the second category, because it's as important, if not more so, than number one. And that is that we must interpret Scripture relationally, redemptively, and missionally. We must interpret Scripture relationally, redemptive, missionally. What does that mean? Relationally. As we read the Scriptures, we have to figure out what does that mean in a person-to-person and a person-to-God context. How do we interpret Scripture relationally when we read certain passages, when we read the entire story? What does that mean relationally? Redemptively. We have to read Scriptures in the context of what does it mean to be saved? What has God done? How is God unfolding the story that means that we can be in relationship with Him? And then missionally, um, how are we reading Scripture to understand that how are, are ways in which we are to serve and be sent with other people? So we must view Scripture just as importantly as literally, relationally, redemptively, and missionally. You see, what often happens is that we get stuck in the micro story of me and Jesus, or this is how I feel about a certain topic. We see those as being most important. But the macro story is one we must relate to as well. And the macro story is simple. The macro story is this. God is a sending God. That's the macro story of Scripture. Read it. You'll see it's everywhere in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, God sends prophets. He sends messengers. He sends signs. He sends theophany. He then sends his people on mission. The prophet Isaiah wrote that the Israelites were to be a light to the nations. Even in their second area of captivity in Babylon, they were instructed to dwell in this new place and be God's people of light wherever they found themselves. God is a sending God. God sends his people. That is the macro story of Scripture. Then, of course, God sends his Messiah, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He sends us. John 20, 21, I'll get to that in a moment. Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So we are a sent people. We are commanded by Jesus to be sent people. We are to continue to be his sent people. This is not just meant for the early church in the book of Acts. So I would caution us to be very, very careful about getting stuck in the arguments over literal translation arguments. And certainly be careful about focusing only on the micro story, the story of me, the me and Jesus stuff. Really important, just don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck in those minute details. And I am preaching to myself because this is where I live. I can spend three months analyzing a single scripture. 
I can get stuck there, and boy, it's fascinating, and it's interesting, and all that stuff, but then I start realizing I'm not really engaging the macro story. We must interpret Scripture relationally, redemptively, and missionally. So, history lesson. The church was at the center of culture for about 1,500 years. Then came the Enlightenment era, and a new cultural epistemology became dominant. Epistemology is a way that we just know what we know, how we know what we know. And what happened after the Enlightenment is that empiricism, which simply means prove something to me, prove it to me, replaced authoritarianism as the main cultural epistemology. Authoritarianism is, I will take the word of an authority that will tell me what I should think and what I believe. The Enlightenment thinker said, no, 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 we're going to stop taking this authority stuff. We're going to test everything. And empiricism replaced it. That's not necessarily bad, but it did begin the end of Christendom. And we now live in a mostly post-Christian, post-modern, secular world. We see this starting in Europe, but boy, it is happening rapidly in the United States. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on this. I think most people would agree with that statement. And here is what is so fascinating. For the last 75 years, the church in America has been operating in denial of these cultural realities. They've been operating in a denial of the cultural reality that we are indeed moving into a post-Christian secular world. The last 75 years, we've seen interesting movements in the church. One of the things that we've seen is uh, going back to really an Old Testament model of being the church. The Old Testament model of being the church was to gather all the people into a specific place. Specifically, that place was the temple. Why? Because that's where God's presence dwelt. So the idea was that we would take all of these people that that had been um, disposed or the diaspora, which had sent people out all over the world, and that once a year or more often they would come back to the centralized place, to Jerusalem, to the temple, and that they would gather there to be in God's presence. So this would be called a centripetal force, the outside coming into the middle. But then Jesus came, and remember, when he was crucified on the cross, the curtain was rendered, right? And it opened the relationship to God. And then Jesus said, the church is now you. The spirit now is in you. Now you are being sent to be the church. Where? Out there. So Jesus came and said, it's no longer about everybody having to come into one gathered space where God's presence is just in this one secret place. Actually, God's presence is everywhere you go because I am with you. So that was this whole new shift towards centrifugal force from the middle out, Christ being the middle, and I am sending you out. Centripetal versus centrifugal. Gathered versus being sent. And what we've seen in the last 75, 50 years is this growth of an attraction model of bringing people where? Back together into these large gatherings of people. And all indications are that while it's still working to move Christians around from one place to another, it's dying as far as reaching the world and the neighborhood. Now, I need to say something here. This is, please hear this. This is critically important. I love the local church. I love the local church in all of its forms. In most places in the United States, certainly in Europe, this would be considered a megachurch. I love this place. I love the gathered nature of of God's people together. So what I'm saying here is not an attack on large church. It's not a condemnation. It's an observation based on research and experience. And we'll see where maybe that's going to lead us in a little bit. So what has been happening in Europe? What's been happening in Europe is a new way of being a community of faith. 
You see, up until um, CA really started doing its work and other organizations started doing its work 50 years ago in Europe, there was a common way that we would engage with uh, a faith system or a religion, if you will. And it looked like this. You had to believe a certain way. You had to behave a certain way. And then you were offered uh, the ability to belong to a group of people. It always worked in that process. You have to believe a certain set of beliefs, which means that if you didn't believe them, you had to come to believe them somehow, okay? You have to believe. Then you have to start acting a certain way that oftentimes was based on those beliefs and oftentimes based on all kinds of extra stuff. And then based on those things, you were asked maybe to then belong to a community of people. And here's what's been happening in Europe for the last 50 years. This has been turned completely upside down. In fact, what they did is they started going into neighborhoods, embedding themselves in those neighborhoods, finding out all they could culturally about those neighborhoods. They got jobs. They started working in the neighborhoods. They became one of them. They garnered trust. They earned people's trust. And then they started serving them with just pure abandonment of love. Whatever the needs were in those neighborhoods, they found that need and they filled it. So people started coming. And guess what? They could belong first. No matter where they came from, no matter what their background, even though they were in a post-Christian culture, they could come and belong with this embedded group of Christians first. And then what happened? Well, they started seeing that once people started belonging to a people group, they started behaving in new and different ways. And once they started behaving in new and different ways, they came to a belief that changed their entire worldview. So people can actually experience the salvation that God has to offer in an inverted sense. They can belong first. They'll come to behave certain ways based on the communities that they're engaging with, and they'll be able to um, uh, believe certain ways. So there are three things that this looks like. As this is lived out, there are three things that this looks like. The first one is it's characterized by what we would call whole life community. Whole life community. In Acts chapter 11, Peter reports to the church in Jerusalem the events surrounding the the conversion of Cornelius and his household. We've been camping out on this in Cairo for quite some time. Um, Two very significant things happen in the early church. Uh, They're represented in Acts 11 and 15. These were decisions made by the early church that made a tectonic shift in how the, the entire world came to understand God and God's presence. But in Acts 11, Peter reports to the church in Jerusalem that there's this Gentile household that guess what, received the Holy Spirit just like the Jews had received it. That was radical news. And the church received it. And the church said, well, therefore then, redemption is available to the Gentiles just as redemption is available to Jews. That turned the world on its ear. So what we learned from that is that the early church was all about racial and ethnic integration. Now, if we interpret relationally, redemptively, and missionally, That's going to change how we understand people. And that's going to change how we respond when we engage with people in our own contexts. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Two important words there, neglect and hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality. Hospitality, it literally means that you will welcome people into your home as an equal. That's what hospitality is. I will welcome somebody into my home, into my life, into all areas of my life as a peer, as an equal. 
That's a pretty strong call, isn't it? Do not neglect to show this hospitality to strangers, Paul says. And Hebrews, or the writer of Hebrews says, we're not sure it's Paul. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting, there's that word again, to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. These are touching on, if we look at these relationally, redemptively, and missionally, on what it means to live in whole life community to one another. Now see, we are called to welcome the stranger. And we are called to live out this whole life community. What does that look like? It means that we are becoming family in all sense of the word. About a year ago, a year and a half ago, we had an exercise with Cairo. We took sticky notes and we asked people, we want you to write down five of the things that you want to be indicators of a community of faith. And we took all of these things. I still have all these sticky notes. We took all of these things and we lumped them into categories. But there was one thing in there that was overwhelmingly a majority. And that was they wanted Cairo to be seen as a family. I think most people in most faith communities would say, I want us to be considered as a family. What do people in families do? You see, what the church is calling us to be in whole life community is it's calling us to be people coming from backgrounds that are multiple and varied, coming from backgrounds, some of us, that are totally outside the church, coming from backgrounds that sometimes are different culturally, and blending us all together in the fullness of a 24-7 day-in and day-out community life where real community is happening all the time and doesn't revolve around a Sunday morning church service. Sunday morning church services are fantastic. The gathered church is critically important. Um, We must do this. We must come together and worship together and sing together and learn together. All of this is critically important. And we must be living 24-7 whole life community together. That is what Christ has called us to. What does that look like? It's incredibly messy. It exposes us to the neediness each one of us has. It engages all of us in the real life stuff that oftentimes when we come together in large groups, we can hide. We can hide behind a face. We can hide behind clothing. We can hide behind a political candidate. We can hide behind so many different things. But when you're living real whole life community together, 24-7, 365, you are seeing things and being things and doing things that get to authentic rootedness of your humanity. And I can tell you something. If it looks anything like mine, and I'm sure it must because I'm human, it's a freaking mess. But if we're not willing to invite people into that, we're just creating a front. It's just an inauthentic front. And the culture... I'm speaking to all of you guys because you inspire me because most of you in this room are younger than I am. The generations behind us, guys, they're demanding it. They're not just saying it's a preference. They're demanding it. They're no longer caught in this leadership mystique thing where the leadership has to be perfect and set on a pedestal. No, they want to see authenticity. They want to see real life. They want to know what are you doing on Sunday afternoon after you preach this sermon on Sunday morning. That's what they want to know. Are we willing to let people into that? Are you willing to let people into your life in authentic, real, whole way, 24-7, in a way that exposes all of the truth? Because when we start to do that, 
the Holy Spirit will take its place in our lives and incredible things will happen. And it's very hard and it's very messy and it's very, very important. Some of you um, know uh, Nicole. Nicole is a colleague of mine. She runs a community in Grasse, France uh, called Parfum de Vie. They uh, moved into France about seven years ago. They embedded there for a number of years. They got regular jobs with the rest of the community. Uh, Nicole is from Scotland, speaks perfect French, of course. And they found in this little community that they had an extreme need for uh, early childhood care, which wasn't being addressed in this little community. So they started doing it. They opened a, a, a facility called Parfum de Vie, which means the, the odor of life or essence of life. Uh, and they started serving this neighborhood. And here's what happened. People started coming. All these little kids started coming to hang out at this place. She sent me an email about a month ago, and she was telling me about what happens there. She was talking about this whole life community. She said, uh, it's an ordinary Saturday morning. There are five kids here between the ages of 12 and 16 in my house. That doesn't include the three who live here 24-7. So now she's got eight kids just kind of hanging out in her house. Some are doing homework. Two stayed over last night. Some are working on a project for April camp. And some are just hanging out. And that's just everyday life here. Nothing to do with our youth group, which starts at 1 o'clock, where a dozen more kids will show up. Almost all of these kids are from Arab Muslim families, and none of them have Christian families. All are from deprived and marginalized backgrounds. Now, when I had you at kids, you were probably thinking, oh, this is cool. They've got an outreach to kids, and they love kids. And the... But when I mentioned that they came from Muslim households, where, where did our minds go with that? Well, they can't do that. That's dangerous. Oh, I don't know. That sounds awfully risky. How could they have Muslims if they're a Christian community? How could they not? How could they not? If they're living 24-7 whole life community, how could they not? And so I I, I was thinking about this, and I, I was inspired by this, and I asked this question, what does whole life community look like for us? What does it look like in Spokane? You see, it's even harder where I live out in the suburbs because the community in the suburbs requires planning and it requires driving. (laughs) But what does it look like for Spokane to live this whole life community? My feeling is that uh, in the the latter years that we have um, accepted what I'll call the curse of acquaintance. You see, we are allowing mere acquaintance with somebody else to pass for authentic community, mostly because we fear messiness. This whole life community requires an attitude of interruption. We must have in our lives enough margin to be interrupted. People in whole life community never say to each other, I know you're busy, but... Do we say that a lot to each other? Uh, Listen, I know you're really busy, but man, could you spare five minutes to meet with me today? People in whole life community never say that. Hey, I got a need. Great, what is it? Let's dive in. Let's go there. 24-7 whole life community. It's critically important if we are to be um, the church to a post-Christian culture, then we must be willing to live in a whole life community aspect. Because like I said, people are watching. And if they're not seeing authentic life being lived, they're not seeing the church and they're running from it whenever they see that. They're running from inauthenticity. The second thing is uh, that these churches that are experiencing this are living life-changing communion together. John 17, 11. Holy Father, Jesus is praying here. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That's what the word communion means. 
that they may be one. Jesus is in communion with the Father. The Father and I are one, Jesus said. What is he praying for his disciples? That we may be one in the exact same way that Jesus and the Father are one. That we may be one. We can do that when we have communion with each other. Deuteronomy 6, 4, 7. Probably the most important and famous of all Old Testament passages. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by on the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. See, communion with one another and with Christ is the fruit of that whole life community. If we're living that 24-7 life with each other, the fruit is going to be communion with one another. Real community is what produces that life change in us. It produces that whole life together, and it produces life-changing communion. This kind of community actually is impossible without being completely rooted in the love of Christ. You see, if we're not abiding in Christ... If we're not living in and through him, the only fruit of whole life community is burnout, disillusionment, unhealthy conflict, and brokenness. Why? Because everybody else is as messed up as you are. And if we are not in communion with the Father and living by the Spirit, the power that he gives us to live in communion with one another, we will be burned out, disillusioned, unhealthy, and broken. And we will just choose, once things start to get a little messy, to jump from this place to that place, to that place, to that place. I don't know that that's doing a lot for us as a community of faith around the nation. I really don't. But when we are one in Christ, when we see and experience the brokenness of the world through Jesus, you see, then it is that we will see people in our communities growing and loving It is then that we will have the ability to experience the natural tensions and conflicts and messiness that always come through in all human relationships. And it is then that we'll be able to see in that messiness a place where we encounter love and grace and reconciliation. It is then that we will see the presence of Christ. And thus we will experience the life-changing transformation, growth, and communion that happens when we are one as the Father and Son are one. This is what Cairo has had as its mission at the very beginning. This has been our task. We've asked ourselves a question, how can we get along? (laughs) The only reason we can get along is because the love of Christ guides us more than our differing opinions on politics and preferences. That's how. You see, Cairo is a really interesting place. I would hope all of you would come and experience sometime. You'll see people in their 20s and you'll see people in their 70s. You will see people who will be classified as liberal and people who are classified as conservative. You will see people that have very different personalities. And how do we get along? Because we allow the love of Christ to guide us more than the difference of our opinions or our political preferences. There's a wonderful book called The Agile Church. I recommend it to anybody. And what the author says is that we are in the midst of a significant adaptive change cycle in the church. What is an adaptive change cycle? Well, typically when we face challenges in any organization, we apply what are called technical changes. We look for a technical fix, right? So uh, we come into a church and we say, you know, our church used to be really cool, but it doesn't look cool anymore, so let's paint the walls a dark color because, you know, young people like dark-colored walls. That's a technical change. Uh, Our carpet's kind of seedy. We're going to put new carpet in. That's a technical change. This is beautiful new carpet, by the way, Russ. (laughs) 
Those are technical changes, right? An adaptive change is something that is unpredictable and it actually turns a whole way of thinking and a whole culture on its side. It's a brand new way of experiencing and understanding things. Um, the best exp- uh, explanation I can give of this is to tell a little story between the difference of adaptive and technical change. Um, you, uh, y'all, when I say Xerox, what all comes to mind when I say Xerox? Copy machines. Copy machines. Yeah, Xerox, copy machines. Um, they were the absolute market leader in copy machines. They still make a darn good copy machine. Uh, in 1970, they decided they were going to set something up on a different side of the country. They uh, existed in Rochester, New York. Xerox has for years and years. And they thought, well, um, I think what we'll do is because we want to have some creative thinking is we're going to set up this thing called the Palo Alto Research Facility or Palo Alto Research Center, or Xerox PARC, Xerox Park, in Palo Alto, California. This is in 1970. They opened this place in Palo Alto, California, which is now the heart of Silicon Valley. And they took all these young computer scientists and uh, these young engineers that weren't getting jobs in the big corporations, and they said, let's have them just go into this place and play around and discover together. And they put in beanbag chairs and a basketball hoop and ping pong tables, all this stuff. Now we look at Silicon Valley and say, oh, that's so cool. They were doing this in 1970. You know what they did at Xerox Park before 1975? They had invented the mouse, the graphical user interface, Ethernet, They invented all of this stuff at Xerox Park before 1975. And Xerox is looking at this going, wow, they're reading this pretty pretty cool stuff. But they just kind of left it off to the side as an appendage. We'll just keep them happy that they can go off and do their thing. And then what happened? Steve Jobs and Bill Gates come in, and they hire all these guys away, and Xerox ended up with nothing. Because they didn't see the adaptive change on the horizon. What they saw was copiers. They make good copiers. They could have been one of the absolute groundbreaking companies in the technological boom that would follow just eight, nine years later. And they missed it because they saw Xerox Park as a technical appendage to Xerox. And a whole group behind them said, this isn't a technical appendage. This is an adaptive change. We are going to move from a certain kind of economy to a brand new economy. It's going to be based on information and access and communication and computer interfaces. And they missed the whole thing because they saw Xerox Parks as a technical and not an adaptive change. And here's what's happening, I think. I think this is happening in the church. You see, Xerox thought that these young engineers were coming up with just this stuff that a small percentage of early adopters would even consider taking on. Early adopters in the business world are considered to be about 2.5% of all consumers. The early adopters. You know what? That's not true anymore the early adopter percentage has grown significantly in the business world, right? It's up to now like 15, 20% would consider themselves early adopters. But I think it's going into the church world as well. The early adopters are a far larger percentage um, than the church general takes for it to be. We are in the midst of a significant adaptive change cycle. And so we have to ask yourselves, what are we doing to recognize this adaptive change? And how are we living into it? What kinds of adaptive experiments are we doing in our communities? What are you doing in your small groups? What's happening to help you be on the leading edge of what's coming next? The future is now. It is happening among us. Do we want to look back 10 years from now and say, oh man, we really missed that. Now we're just kind of a relic. Or do we want to keep being the movement of God, which is ever-expanding and constantly going out among us. 
The life, death, and resurrection of Christ represents the greatest adaptive change the world has ever seen or ever will see. Are we still allowing the power of Christ to change us into wholly new people? Are we allowing that? Because that power is still there. I've written down a number of questions for you guys to consider in small groups. They're out in the foyer out there if you um, would like to change them. But I would, I would encourage you um, to look at this because this whole life community and uh, this life-changing communion are critically important. There's a third factor. It's life-giving mission. John said, or Jesus said in John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Again, Jesus spoke to them, John 8, 12, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Remember in the Old Testament, they were told, the Jews were told that they would be the light to the nations. Now Jesus is saying that he is the light of the world, that whoever follows in him will also walk in the light and have the light of life. We um, read that, um, that beautiful call to worship earlier. There was a question there that's similar to what I'm going to bring up here. Um, as, as most of us know who have studied any kind of catechism, uh, the first thing that we ask in any catechism is what is uh, the chief aim of man? And the answer to that is the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I would like us to ask what is the purpose of the church? What is the purpose of the church? It is to bring life-giving change to this broken world. Bringing people from death to life, from darkness to light. The kingdom here is among us. Our purpose is about so much more than getting people to attend a Sunday service or to join our church or agree with a certain doctrine or idea. It bothers me in so many conversations that I have that the questions keep coming back to doctrinal positions. Doctrinal positions are important, but again, we're missing the macro if we're focusing in on this micro. Can we just get beyond our tendency to be border patrol agents and focus on the center of Jesus? Can we just get beyond it? We're so concerned about the outside and protecting the borders that we're we're forgetting to call on the center, which is Jesus. In our context, we should be paying attention to the particular ways that our societies are stuck in darkness and in death. You see, those folks who are stuck in darkness and in death, they could give a rip about our border policies. They're desperate for life and love while we sit around arguing over beliefs, bathrooms, and protection. And seriously, don't we have greater concerns than these? I hope we do. I really, really hope we do. Are we offering, as the church is called to do, a life-giving solution to the people who need it the most? Jesus calls us to serve them. What are we doing? Are we engaged in life-giving mission? Here's the good news. If we are living whole life community, and if we are experiencing life-changing communion one with another, we cannot help ourselves but live into life-giving mission. If we're not producing life-giving mission, go back up the chain. What's wrong with my whole life community? Why am I not experiencing whole life community? If there's no fruit of mission at the end, then something's wrong with the community. If there's no mission at the end, then something is wrong with your communion with the church. Examine those things. If you're seeing life-giving mission, you're living whole life community and you're living in life-changing communion. 
So what does this look like for us? How can we be what Christ calls us to be in this broken world? The beautiful thing is, is that Newcom has been doing this for a very long time. And it's a wonderful thing to see. But I also want to encourage you that this way of being, and again, I'm not suggesting that this is the right way and and other churches are doing things in the wrong way. Please don't hear that. What I'm suggesting is that as the body of Christ universal, these are ideals we must all be striving for. Not so we can be right and someone else can be wrong, but so that we can be kingdom people. Whole life community, life-changing communion, life-giving mission. It's happening here in North America, getting back to CA and what CA is doing. CA currently has over 30 projects in North America where this is happening, where people are embedding in communities and finding out what the needs are and are living with people in 24-7 types of communities. They're experiencing life-changing together, and they're finding ways to give and serve in that life-giving mission. It's happening here. CA has 50 years of experience in doing this, and now what they're seeing is America is following where Europe was 100 years ago. So really, CA and what they're doing, they're in the right place at the right time, and it's the right people, and they're doing the right things. And here's what's so great about it. They didn't anticipate it. They just happened to be in the right place at the right time, being the right kinds of people, living the right kinds of way. You see, they started this in the late 1960s trying to live counterculturally, living like Jesus told them to live, like sent people. And by the way, you don't get off the hook if you call yourself not sent because you're not sent to Asia or Africa. The United States is now the largest missionary field in the world. More countries are sending more missionaries to the United States right now than the United States is sending overseas. Find out about Asia in particular. South Korea sends missionaries here. They're swarming our borders. Why? Because they think we need to be saved. So you're not off the hook if you're not going uh, overseas. I would encourage you to start next door. But CA cannot do this without scaling and without partners. Um, new community has been sorting, uh, has been gifting to CA and supporting CA for many, many years. And so thank you for that. But here's what our goals are. Our goals are to scale the North America team. Because what we're seeing happening in Europe and now in America, if you look at the generations behind ours, or for many of you, your generation, these are the kinds of communities and authentic life that you are wanting and demanding. And so all of a sudden, what we've seen in CA is this huge demand for people to come and say, we want to start living lives like this. Is this possible? Can we do this in Atlanta, Georgia? Can we do this in Spokane, Washington? Can we do this in Seattle? Can we do this in any city across America? And the answer is yes, if we can scale to resource them. And that's what my job is with CA as North America director. We have a goal to um, at least double our team. We currently have a team of six people in North America. Um, We need to have 12 right away, and we're going to go from 30 projects. I think we could probably go to 300 to 400 projects across the United States in the next five to ten years. The only way we can do that is to scale what we're doing. The only way we can do that is to um, increase our team. We're looking to hire a director of communication. Uh, We're looking to increase our coaching network across North America. So lots of things that we're looking to do with CA. And we are so excited about what the future holds and for the partnership that we have here at New Community. So thank you for that. 
I am going to spare us um, the next 35 minutes that I have here um, and, and bring, us, uh, bring us to a conclusion. And let me say it this way. There are three quick trends that we're noticing. We are noticing that people are wanting to go from very complex into very simple environments. You'll see this in the corporate world. They're moving from complex to simple. We're moving in the church from a professional to a vocational environment. You're going to start seeing a lot of leaders in the church being people just like everybody else with jobs that are serving the church out of their giftedness, not because they've gone away somewhere for three to five years to be trained. It's moving from professional to vocational. It's also moving from institutional to organic. Again, this is true in business. It's also true in the church. An organic movement, not a highly produced movement, but an organic movement. These are the trends that we're seeing. I'll leave us with this. It's, it's critically important that we continue to gather. And it's critically important that we gather in large rooms like this or in coffee houses or in dens or living rooms or in kitchens. It doesn't matter where we gather, but it's incredibly important that we continue to gather. Group is where deepest personal growth will happen. But let me balance that to say that when we are sent, that is where the greatest communal growth will happen. That is what it means to bring the light of the world and to see the macro story, which is that God is ascending God and we are sent people. Amen? You're already doing this as a faith community. I would encourage you to keep going. Please keep going. Um, because we have so many incredible stories of how God is at work um, in our midst. So let me encourage you uh, to continue to serve and to continue to be and to be a sent people with the light of Christ in you. Let's pray. God's so grateful for this community of faith that has been a light to Spokane for um, these so many years. So grateful for a people that have been living whole life community with each other, that have been experiencing life-changing communion and who give freely into life-giving mission. May those three things be how this community is known. God, equip us by the power of your Holy Spirit um, to get real with ourselves and with others. Lord, help us to be a sent people all the time in everything we do and everywhere we go. By the power of your Holy Spirit, may we be so equipped. We pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. If, um, if you guys want to learn more about this mission in the world, please feel free to ask me. Uh, if you'd like to learn other ways that you can partner with us um, directly, you guys already support us as a church, and that's awesome. Um, please feel free to ask. And if you do meet in small groups, there are some small group questions for you guys to ponder out there. Thank you so much. Will you guys thank Jeff with me? I want to wrap up by saying one thing. <clears throat> I told you you'd take notes. I took a bunch of them. And uh, there were three main points Jeff made, which were there were to be about whole life community, life-changing communion, and life-giving mission. But as I was listening, there kept 
seeming, at least to me, to be one consistent theme. He would bring it up every now and then when he described what family looked like. Or he'd bring it up when he talked about adaptive change. Or he'd bring it up in in other ways throughout. Maybe it's just because it's kind of on my mind a lot as well. But I don't know if you've ever done crafts with little kids before. And uh, sometimes when I do crafts with kids, I get a little bit, like, uh, fixated on making sure, like, draw color in the lines, right? Don't, don't, like, spill everything everywhere. Like, let's keep it neat. Let's, like, make sure everything looks the way it's supposed to. No, 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 don't do it that way. Do it this way. That's the way the craft is supposed to be organized, right? And then you realize, like, no, 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 no. Just let them go, Right? And you start to see what happens. And there's coloring outside the lines and things get spilled everywhere. And what comes out is this amazing piece of art. A thing that you look at and you go, wow, I would have never made it like that. That is far better than I would have ever created, right? The thing that kept coming to my mind over and over as Jeff is talking is this word, messy. Right? Messy. Family is messy. We all know it. If you're truly in family, if you're in each other's lives, it is messy. And if we want the kind of community that God has been calling us into to be a family, it's going to mean rubbing shoulders with people. It's going to mean hurt. It's going to mean loss. It's going to be messy. But in the end, it's good. If we want the kind of change that is on the horizon, the things that we're called to, the ways that we're supposed to express our faith, the change that is coming to the church and to culture and all of that, it isn't just clean cut. It isn't just simple all the time. It's really messy. And I think when we talk about this idea of mission, mission means getting our hands dirty, right? It means being involved in people's lives to the point where there is significant change. And how? It's because my hands got in the mess. And that's what I keep feeling like God is calling us to. Is to, to don't worry about the clean cut lines. Don't worry about who's in, who's out. Don't worry about is it right, is it wrong. Don't worry about, just worry about are we doing what God has called us to? Are we pursuing people with faith? Are we knowing our Savior? Are we living with this confidence that God is working among us? And can we be okay to draw outside the lines? Can we be okay to, to get our hands in the mess, to be alongside of people that desperately need us? That's what I think God continues to call us into.